Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Have you heard about this trend of asking your wedding guests to not take photos at your wedding? I actually didn't know this was a thing until recently. Apparently, it's very popular. I get it, and I don't. Where's the balance of wanting people to be in the moment and maybe some people not wanting people to post photos of them online and just being rude to your guests? It'll be an interesting conversation. I'd love to hear your take on it. We're talking about it a little later on during the show. This whole idea of asking wedding guests not to take photos. Also, really sad topic, but I think needs to be discussed. And I want to offer some resources And that is for healing after abortion. I recently learned about this massive trend on TikTok, the social media platform TikTok, of videos being made, montages of farewells to children, where a baby's voice is, a childlike baby voice is talking, and there's the short chronicle in about 30 seconds of a woman's abortion story. And with these videos come comments in the thousands of people sharing about their own abortion. And I want to share with you a little bit about that because it touches on the fact that we need to talk about healing after abortion, but we also need to talk about why women deserve better than abortion. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. We're unpacking, kicking off this hour, our Theology of the Body series, and we're talking about an interesting topic, and that is lust. Uh, It's a topic that's really interesting to hear because I think this is one of those moments where our Catholic faith separates us in many respects from other faith perspectives. So we're unpacking Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body series. We're on Catechetical Talks 24 through 27. And joining me today is Father Tim Grumbach. He is the chaplain at Bishop Alamany High School in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. He also serves with many youth-facing organizations such as Young Catholic Professionals, Life Teen, NET, and other programs forming the next generation of Catholics. And today we're unpacking the topic of Theology of the Body. I have really enjoyed this new section of Theology of the Body that we're diving into on the Sermon on the Mount, where we actually unpack this key passage from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 27 through 28, where we read, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so today we're going to unpack this. What does adultery of the heart mean? What does this have to do with threefold concupiscence and that interior life of the human person? Does what you think actually come out as to a sin? Could you think something that's a sin? You can't. We're going to talk about that today with Father Tim Grumbach. Father Tim, welcome back to Trending. 
Always good to be here. And it was a wild summer. I was all over the place. And yeah, definitely with life teen and focus and net, but it's good to be settling back in at school. And they've actually got me teaching classes this year. And so I'm really excited to uh, to take on a classroom full time. And uh, it's a very different way of life, but it's really uh, opening up my heart to these students in a new way. So I'm glad to be able to be here with you. Thanks for joining me. Let's talk about adultery of the heart. In Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, Pope St. John Paul II starts to point to that key passage from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew. And Pope St. John Paul II is emphasizing that we're talking about this challenge in the culture of this desire of the heart and how our interior life, what actually goes on in our interior life, actually matters. And Pope St. John Paul II, and kicking off all of this, Father Tim, we've been building on these key concepts, and we already unpacked the original states in the garden, such as original innocence, that God's intention for the human person was this original happiness, this union with Him, where we understood ourselves so well that even in our nakedness, we were comfortable, and the spousal meaning of the body was understood, the mystery of the gift of life, all of that was present. But after the fall comes this great challenge, and Pope and St. Paul in, Rome, in, in, the, in Romans actually talks about how we need to understand now that the commandments, even after the fall of the human person, are still written on our human heart. And with that, tying it in what, to what Jesus Christ says about our interior life, Pope St. John Paul II is taking our focus to ponder what does it mean when we talk about sins of the heart. Right, and he reveals the human heart as giving meaning to the whole human person. And I, I love that he, he looks at this line, which is one of the most challenging lines in the gospel, especially today when lust is so prevalent and a lot of the times maybe our experience of lust is almost like we're, we're victims of a culture that is throwing so many images at us and a, mm. a, a, a cultural mm. and sexual revolution that is really going on the offensive against us. So Jesus' words that those who look at a woman with lust uh, are, are committing adultery with her already. So these are really challenging words, uh, but it just shows that Jesus is deepening our hearts at the same time that he's calling us not just, well, first of all, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that he has not come to abolish the law, but in each of these moments, he is calling us to a deepening of the law, recognizing the law as more than simply our actions, but is an expression of our hearts. And the human heart is where we find that, that the meaning of who we are. So Jesus you know, and I, I have to, I cannot emphasize this enough. Jesus is not going to command anything of us that he doesn't also give us the grace to accomplish it. Mm -hmm. So we may hear this as like, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to not look at people in this way, Jesus. And in saying that, we're, you know, we're kind of missing the point. He's not going to ask us to do anything he doesn't give us the strength to do as well. So right. Jesus is right. deepening the law to our interiority and calling something greater out of our hearts that we may not feel that we can accomplish on our own. There's a significant line where Pope St. John Paul II says, we are dealing with a desire directed. And I think that's significant because I was with a group of young people recently and a young man asked me, he said, I'm really trying to understand that if there's a thought that occurs in my head that, you know, maybe there's this a desire for a woman that initially comes up where I'm thinking about this woman or I have this image of her in my head, is that immediately a sin if I have that? And we were talking about how there's a difference between how 
you might experience a thought and whether or not you indulge with it. And that's why I think what Pope St. John Paul II says when he talks about desire directed is it's what we do with our thoughts. How do we direct our thoughts once something occurs, especially for men who are so visual? I remember reading a book that really chronicled how visual men are. Very different uh, for me as a woman and just in general. Uh, I was shocked by just the way a man can hold an image in his mind very differently from women. And so when you mentioned earlier that Jesus is talking about how our heart and our human body combined with our senses, all of this directs this link as Pope St. John Paul II refers to in this direction of the body and the senses to make this link for us to understand things such as the blueprint for the human body, that we have an intellect and a body, they're not separate that we're rational people who can know and love. And with that, that means there's a sense of honor that we give to the body. Right. And the, the whole idea of fleeting thoughts that, uh, or intrusive thoughts, right? Without going mm-hmm. into any mm-hmm. details, as always. Uh, as a confessor, I hear a lot about intrusive thoughts or fleeting thoughts or, you know, are my thoughts sinful? The question comes up a lot. And I say, you know, uh, the sacrament of confession is the sacrament of God's forgiveness of our guilt, and our emotions, these fleeting thoughts, are not things that cause guilt in our hearts. But what is our relationship with these thoughts? Do we, you know, these thoughts will come and they will be fleeting, but do we do what we can to dispel them? Are they, you know, do we let them be nothing more than distractions which come and go? Or do we hold on to them? Do we use them to entertain ourselves? Do our thoughts begin to shape the way that we interact and relate with other people? That is when it starts to take on that more sinful dimension of mm-hmm. am I using my thoughts that uh, leads to certain actions or am I aware that you know these thoughts coming up in my heart are very, uh, you know, a very real part of what it means to be human after the fall. And mm-hmm. St. John Paul II goes deeply into that in this section as well is that we have to be honest. There is a, a pre-fall and a post-fall experience of humanity and we very much live in the post-fall experience of humanity, redeemed by Jesus Christ, of course. But we are still experiencing that concupiscence, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, that we have to recognize the reality of where we stand as humans. Let's be where we are standing on our feet. And that's where God wants us to, to love and to be aware of our feelings, our thoughts. But know that there is a discipline uh, to the way that we use our thoughts and our feelings knowing that our emotions, they come, they go. How do we use them and how are we aware of them? I like to think of it as active versus passive. We can have mm-hmm. a thought or experience that occur, but it's what we do with that, right? And right. passively, we can make the, sp- the mistake of not doing anything, right? Uh, and that is still a problem if we think, oh, well, hey, I'm just having these thoughts. I'm just going to stay here. Maybe not take it further per se. But So that is an action in and of itself versus right. passive. You have this experience and you choose to redirect your mind, your actions. And then there's active thought where we're entering into that desire and we're directing our ourselves in those thoughts. So I think that's significant because we don't have these kind of conversations. And if you tie this, as you said, Father Tim, to concupiscence, that fallen state of human nature, I think it helps to reveal a little bit more. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. That's Father Tim Grumbach. He's a chaplain at Bishop Alamany High School in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Father Tim, as we're unpacking this Theology of the Body series, let's talk a little bit about the threefold concupiscence. It's interesting because it's only with the fall of the human person that concupiscence becomes 
normative among people. Fundamentally, there really was this underlying sense of goodness about the human person, all of creation, but in particular, it was a human person who was very good. And part of what I love about Pope St. John Paul II's work is that he emphasized God's original vision for the human person was that original state of happiness and union. And with the fall, that severing of grace occurred. And so it's not the choice of God to give us concupiscence to have this threefold temptation, but it's what happens when we're severed from that life of God, when we miss the gift of what God has given to us. So let's talk a little bit about that threefold concupiscence of flesh, the eyes, and pride of life. Right. And uh, one of my least favorite sayings is when people will say like, well, Father, I've sinned, but I'm only human. I'm like, well, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, sin does not make you more human. Sin is not what makes you human. Uh, I, I actually would say that sin actually makes us less human. But also right. I have to be careful when I say that. I'm not saying you come into the confession and you're barely human. No, that's not what I'm saying. Is <laughs> I'm saying that, uh, you know, in your humanity, the way that God created you is not as sinful, but we do have something uh, fallen about our nature. Uh, it is, right, it's deprived of certain grace, but not depraved. It is, there's something uh, fallen about our nature, but we are not totally corrupt, we believe as Catholics. And so this language from the first letter of St. John, that you have the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that John Paul II beautifully goes into this as a reality and as the historical man, that Jesus is not just talking to the people, uh, you know, not just talking to Adam, uh, not just talking to the people in front of him, but is talking to us as well. And you don't have to look far to realize that you know, we have certain disordered affections, disordered desires that we will sometimes uh, love things and use people and that's getting it backwards. And so mm. if we can love God above all things, then that's the love that God has created us for. But if we love things before God, then we're falling into that very real threefold concupiscence, this temptation towards disordered relationship and towards temptation, towards sin. That that's, that's at the heart of what John Paul II is doing. And really, he's setting a foundation for better understanding the way where we were created. And so he definitely uses these couple of paragraphs, these sections about setting a foundation to help us better understand, not that, our, not that we are foundationally sinful, but that we are created good. And mm -hmm. this fallen world uh, comes from our temptation. And it's mm -hmm. not something that's natural to the world but something about our fallen nature that Christ has desired to redeem. Let's talk a little bit about lust, because this is where I think the conversation gets interesting. Two reasons. One, predominantly the crisis of pornography in our culture. There are a lot of people, even people of faith, more so often are Protestant uh, friends of mine, who will kind of try to combat that porn's not that big of a deal. And even people, Catholic people will say this too, but I really grew up with a lot of Protestant friends and it was interesting to see many of whom just said, you know, what's the big deal? You're, you know, you're not actually doing anything, but it goes back to this statement of Jesus in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount that even to desire her, you've already committed a sin with her in your heart. And it's interesting because there was a big debate earlier this year going on yet again when 
Matt Frad, the Catholic speaker, had Dennis Prager on. And I grew up on Dennis Prager. And I remember as a little kid hearing him on talk radio. And he would always talk about how lust was a good thing. Lust is great. There's nothing wrong with lust. There should be passion. And parsing it out, he wasn't just talking about passion. He thinks lust is okay. You can think and indulge whatever you want in your mind with a person. And there's fundamentally a difference between us and looking at this. And even interestingly, between for example, our Jewish counterparts on this topic. Because what Jesus is saying is that, no, it's not just the physical action. It's actually what you think. And so I think it's important when we're talking about that, Father Tim, to emphasize there's a difference between passion and lust. Passion is a great thing. We even used to talk historically more about eros, right, that love of passion as a good thing, as long as that's not exclusively the only thing that is had. And even Pope St. John Paul II talks about that in his writing, that historically we talk about eros as a good thing. Someone should desire their spouse or desire the person they're going to marry, but again, virtue needs to enter into the conversation. And so let's talk about that because I think we live in a culture that says, I can consume whatever content and think about anything I want, whether it's porn or it's a movie with inappropriate scenes, shows, you name it. But we can sin with our eyes. And I think that's so significant. We can sin within our minds as well. Right. And John Paul II makes it very clear that this look, this gaze upon the other outside of the sacrament of marriage uh, can be a sinful thing. And uh, he has a very interesting section where he, he suggests that a, a married man can look at his wife with desire, with attraction, uh, but that it is something that must be purified by the sacrament of matrimony. Mm. Uh, to look at a woman in that way outside of marriage, uh, it becomes a sinful thing because you're desiring that union uh, with somebody that you're not married to and you don't have the grace of the sacraments to purify that. And that's not to say that a, a husband can look at his wife any way that he wants to that right. will fulfill his pleasure and his desire in a disordered way. That's not what John Paul II is saying. He's saying it within the context of marriage where you have the grace of the sacrament purifying your heart, that it's not a bad thing to look at your spouse and to, to love them and to appreciate the beauty, their physical beauty. That's not a bad thing. But even within that context, you have to be aware of what desire still needs to be purified in your own right. heart. Uh, and right. so um, when it comes to something like pornography, you know, somebody could say, oh, well, you know, I, I'm not hurting anyone else. Uh, you know, there's so much to say just about the, the industry and, and giving any kind of mm -hmm. business to the industry is, can be a sinful thing. But what it does to your own heart is, you know, what is it they say about pornography? You know, you, you demand everything of the people that you're looking at and they demand nothing of you. And that, you know, that shrinks a heart and makes it impossible to love, you know, let alone those people that you might be looking at, but the other people in your life, it becomes impossible to love them with the love of God because you've only filled your heart with this desire to be pleased, uh, to, to receive pleasure from others without having to, you know, give pleasure to them in a healthy, holy way without having anything demanded of you. And that mm. can do nothing but shrink a heart and make, and, and make it more shallow. So, you know, people may mm. say, oh, pornography, I'm not hurting anyone when I'm doing this in the privacy of my own home. Like, yeah, but your heart is, is being shrunk and made shallow and smaller. And you're finding, you will find yourself incapable of loving the way that God wants you to love other people. Mm. And, you know, this isn't meant as a judgment on those who might be mired in an addiction to pornography, but to be aware 
And you can probably tell yourself, if that is you, what it's doing to your heart and, and how horrible it feels to be unable to love another person deeply because you've, you're only loving yourself through that experience and nothing is being demanded of you. Uh, and that is the kind of love that Jesus on the cross calls us to. So to be unable to love that way, it, it very much shrinks, shallows, and, and makes smaller the heart of a Christian. Mm. And I think that another way to show this, too, when you're seeing the difference within the context of marriage of being purified, your desire being purified by the sacrament, you also have to call within marriage, you're called to serve and love and embrace the whole person, to mm -hmm. not just reduce them to their body parts and to pleasure, but you're joining a life together in service and communion. So there is a lot that can go wrong. There's a lot, and lust can occur within marriage too, if you are simply reducing, looking at someone in a reductive way. And I love in the translation that Pope mm -hmm. St. John Paul II actually puts in parentheses in the translation of Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her, and he says in a reductive way, Pope St. John Paul II adds that, has already committed adultery with her in his heart where you're exclusively reducing her and so we are looking at this from a holistic perspective of embracing the whole person you're at service this is why a man kneels down in proposing to a woman he's giving up his entirety his service his protection all that he is to her and he's to lead her through his virtuous example father tim let's talk a little bit about shame if you're just joining us you're listening to trending with tim Ray here on relevant radio Pope St. John Paul II refers to shame as a boundary experience or a limit experience. Uh, he says this because prior to the fall, there was no shame. There was comfort and nudity. There was comfort in understanding the purpose and function of the body in the generative dimension of new life. But what happens is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we read what's so interesting is that Adam and Eve were naked, we read, and they felt no shame. But then the fall comes and Adam and Eve realize their nakedness. Pope St. John Paul II say, says that shame touches in that moment the deepest level and seems to shake the very foundation of their existence. So what he's saying is that suddenly that first experience after the fall is they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. They hid themselves from him. They were afraid. They covered themselves. And it's so fascinating that Pope St. John Paul II, Father Tim, ties together fear and shame. He says a certain fear is always part of the very essence of shame. And yet what we see Adam do is that he points to his fear, but he doesn't point to the actual problem. He points mm -hmm. to that discomfort that was present within the sin. Yeah, and, and pointing to that, and you could say in a way it's almost like when someone makes a victim of themselves, I'm, I'm not you know, denigrating actual victims, but when someone makes a victim of themselves without acknowledging what they've done wrong, that can be a negative way of expressing this. And I like to make a distinction between humility and humiliation, mm. uh, that Adam and Eve could have experienced this in humility in, oh, we've just been attacked by the serpent, but we didn't give in because, uh, because we want our hearts to grow larger in this experience of weakness but rather they experience the fall and experience their nakedness now as humiliation, which instead of making their hearts larger and deeper, it shallows it, right? It makes their hearts even smaller. And so humility can, uh, can be something that makes our souls bigger and greater and grander, but the act of humiliation makes us want to hide. And so the nakedness goes from being this, this humbling thing, which reveals our hearts completely, and reveals the image of God. 
in us and actually allows us to have dominion over creation, it corrupts it, twists it, and turns it upside down so that now our nakedness is a shameful thing that we, that we must hide, that we're afraid reveals too much of ourselves and ultimately you know, kind of humiliates us and turns it backwards. So now we're, at, we're in, under the dominion of the creation around us through our weakness and our ability to get sick and to be hurt and to die. And so it's this great twisting where the serpent could not create anything of his own, but he could only make us doubt God's goodness. And John Paul II, I love the language he uses here to describe what the servant's action is against Eve is that he leads her to doubt the goodness and the gift, the, the denial and the doubting of the gift. And that just makes my heart break that that was the enemy's weapon against us and continues to be, is not to attack us physically, but to make us doubt God's goodness. And that's what happened in the garden, mm. and that's what turned nakedness into shame. It reminds you what Pope St. John Paul II says when he says, a man in some way loses the original certainty of the image mm -hmm. of God that was expressed in the body. And I thought that line was so profound. I'll just say it again. Man in some way loses the original certainty of the image of God expressed in the body. So what Pope St. John Paul II is saying is that a man and woman participated in the world in a way that gave deep joy and peace and they lost that, as Pope St. John Paul II says, and that when they lose living in the truth, they lose the very value of their body. But he also said they lose simplicity as well. Mm. Right. And that language of loss, he also says that, uh, that concupiscence is a, is a lack. There's something lacking uh, now. And, and original sin, we could think of something that's attached itself to our hearts. But I, I actually like the language as well that it is something lacking from us, our, our, our sonship, our daughterhood, and our relationship with God, that there is now something lacking. And so concupiscence doesn't add anything to our humanity. It's actually having taken away what best expresses our humanity in nakedness. And we think of it as, as a vulnerability. And you know, ultimately the body is meant to be sacramental. It's meant to reveal the mystery of the human person. It's a visible sign of invisible, the invisible beauty of our humanity. And you know, the language I love to use with my juniors as I teach them sacraments is sacraments are efficacious. They do what they say they're going to do. They do what they point to. They don't just point to heaven. They bring heaven down. And our bodies were meant to do that from the beginning, but the enemy has twisted that. And instead of revealing heavenly realities of our humanity, it, it, you know, our, our nakedness is something that, that shames us, that makes us want to hide those things. And so that, that was the greatest corruption that the enemy worked in the garden. And isn't that the joy of the theology of the body that Jesus is here in his coming, his life, death, and resurrection to give himself to us, to present the grace necessary to live that original state of happiness, to live in joy and peace and in simplicity. Yet again, that's what the coming of Jesus Christ is all about. Father Tim Grumbach here on Trending with Tim Ray. Thank you so much for joining me in unpacking Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body in this series. Don't miss an episode. We're posting all of the Theology of the Body series on the podcast, relevantradio.com. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back. If you have a question, I'd love to take your question today. The number is 888-914-9149. I've been really enjoying a lot of emails that have come in about the Barbie movie. 
and talking about YouTube. I, everywhere I go, I was at the grocery store and at church the other day, people said, I'm so sorry I heard you were banned on YouTube. I was. And I shared a little bit about that last week. I'm going to work on petitioning it because I have all of the data. They tried to accuse me of medical misinformation. If you missed it, they deleted my whole account. Multiple videos went down one after the other. Someone had a vendetta out clearly watching closely. But everything's true. The link between abortion and breast cancer, the harm of abortion on a woman's body, uh, the truth about the fact that there are laws, or should I say legislation, in the state of California trying to make it so that my children, your children, could be taken away from you as young as two years old simply for the things such as my kid maybe making a joke that she's a boy because she doesn't necessarily understand the differences yet. It's insane. And they got me over, or should I say got me? I didn't do anything. They accused me of medical misinformation. So I'm going to report the facts. We'll see if we go back up online. But again, here's the truth of the matter. We have to tell the truth. We shouldn't be afraid of being canceled. Quite frankly, I expected it. I'm not surprised that it took this long, especially on YouTube. But we need to spread the word via word of mouth. And this is why I hope if you're asking, what can I do? Tell the truth. Share episodes of Trending, spread the word, because what the downfall of being banned on YouTube is, is that it was a place where a lot of people could discover these topics we discussed, these important trendy topics, whether we're talking about the Barbie movie, or whether we're talking about infertility, we're going to give a Catholic take on intrauterine insemination, also GIFT and IVF tomorrow here on Trending. So if you have some questions of clarification about the church's teaching on that, we'll talk about it here on Trending. But what I want to talk about now is interesting, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. So I did not know this was a trend. Actually, I think I went to a wedding where this was something a few years ago, and I think most people took it as a joke. But this actually happened recently. It's a trend of asking guests not to take photos at your wedding. What do you think about it? Yay or nay? Is there something wrong with doing that? I get it. I get some of the reasons why. I just actually saw this in a, in a family situation. I have a uncle who's getting married out of the country right now, actually, in Bali. He got married this weekend, and we didn't go far away. Actually, I didn't even get a wedding invitation. I'll take that up with him. He doesn't listen to the show, but anyway, he he got married in Bali, and my mom's out there for the wedding, which, by the way, please pray for the people of Bali and for my mom as well. They've had three massive earthquakes today, and it it's pretty mainstream for them to have earthquakes, but it's definitely startling, and they're on tsunami watch still, so praying for safe travels home. But so my uncle did this. He did no wedding photos at his wedding, and I had no idea about this until a video was sent to me of my uncle actually asking my grandpa not to take any photos at his own son's wedding. And I was really intrigued by this because it's a topic I think that for a lot of people— we might get. On one side, you know, he's asking we want people to be present. We want people to be able to enjoy making memories and just really be here. People came from all over the world and we want them to just be here. You showed up. You chose to be here. Be present. And also, there was the comment made that, well, we're paying a lot of money for photographer and videographers. And I can also argue that having been married in the last five years, we're coming up on, my, on our five-year wedding anniversary, actually. It went by really fast. I remember one of the things that I didn't like about my photos, and even some of the key photos, and I love my wedding photos, but one of the things I didn't like 
was there were moments that there were really neat moments being captured at the wedding, and there would be 20 phones with the screens up in front before you could actually look at the photo. So you're trying to look at what's happening, and yet there are all these cameras or phones with cameras where people are taking pictures. And it, was, it didn't mind me so much that people were taking pictures, but what bothered me was that my photo had all these cameras in it instead of just being able to enjoy the photo itself. Now, it's something you just have to get over. Everyone's photos are things that you don't like. But I was really kind of just thinking about this from the perspective of, for example, my grandpa. My grandpa loves, let me say it again, loves taking photos of everything. He has a photo documenting every single moment that he's been around for. And I will say this, he has been around for everything. And his camera documentation, I will admit, sometimes is not our favorite documentation. And he knows this. So if he listens to this, he knows this. We we hate the food mug shots that he takes. He loves to take pictures of people eating because he loves candid photos. But he likes candid eating photos. And there are the ugliest photos. And no, I know my producers are asking probably and will ask for photos. There are so many photos, ugly photos of me taking a bite of a hamburger, taking a bite of some beans, taking a bite of a piece of birthday cake, and just the most awful face. But it's a joy to have all of these photos. And he's never been one to miss the moment. He's documented it and he's always had a nice camera and he's always been present for everything. And so I couldn't imagine what it was like for him to be asked by his own son not to take photos at the wedding and there were plenty of jokes made and I get it you know people were saying we're gonna get grandpa a, f- a camera for his shoes you know what we might have done that if we had known ahead of time I don't think anyone knew ahead of time that this was going to be the story and it was actually interesting because my mom took a video of my uncle asking my grandpa to not take photos at the wedding which in and of itself is just funny but then there's my aunt's reaction she's like holding her face going what if he takes photos thinking there's no way he can't not take photos? I haven't heard the final consensus on this, whether or not he hid and took photos or not. But just the reaction was so surprising from my mom, my aunt, just looking and going, he can't take pictures? It's grandpa. And yet here's kind of some of my thoughts on this. What do you think? Because this is a new trend. I get wanting to be present for the moment. I completely understand I completely understand that desire to be present in the moment. I also understand the desire perhaps to, and again, I say perhaps on this one, perhaps to not have photos of your wedding posted before the professional ones go up. I guess you just kind of have to throw your hands up with that one, or if you really don't want people to, you just say, hey, feel free to take photos, but we have professional photographers here, and we ask that we just share our photos first online. That's fine. I get that, especially with, you know, having children. You want to share your first pictures of your baby, and everyone wants to share good news. And I think that's part of that, is that you want to share good news when you hear it, but sometimes it's not your good news to share. And in the age of social media, I think we've lost that perspective at times. And... I also want to come back to that idea of being present for something because I'll never forget. I was in traveling outside the country in Europe for the first time. And here we are in Europe. Pope Francis was elected while we were in Ireland and the conclave took, cable, took place while we were in Ireland. And then we travel into Italy 
as the, I think the word inauguration is what happens, where he's inaugurated as Pope. And after that, we were there for one of his very first masses in Rome. It was incredible. And I remember that Pope Francis shocked everyone because I was there the first time that he jumped out of that Pope mobile and he was walking around the crowd. So poor Swiss guards didn't know what to do, especially after everything from Pope St. John Paul II to Pope Benedict, where they had this bulletproof uh, encasement of the Pope. Now this was an open, open just ability for the Pope to be touched and seen. But now he was jumping out of the Pope mobile. And he was actually reaching into the crowds and blessing and touching people. And right next to me, I wish I was close enough. I leaned as far over as I could over the barricade so that the Pope could touch me for his blessing. And I couldn't quite get there, but there was a woman two people over from me. And as the Pope is leaning at her to bless her, and he's literally trying to touch her head for the blessing, this woman has a iPad, a large iPad, between her and Pope Francis. And she's leaning away from him to take an up-close photo of him as he's leaning over the top of the iPad trying to touch her and give her a blessing. My jaw just dropped because here I am precariously hanging over the railing of the barrier barricades. I'm like looking at the Australian people next to me. Hey, hold on to me if I fall. <laughs> Yet this woman wasn't, wasn't there in the moment. She was missing it. And some people might say, hey, she got a great photo. She did. But she missed being touched by the Pope. And yes, she still received the blessing. But I think those were those types of moments that I think people really want to try and preserve at weddings. That you're present. You're in the moment. And it's a reminder for all of us that perhaps we definitely do take too many photos and chronicle things. My husband and I had a great evening. We happened to be out at the lake last night during the golden hour. It was a perfect time for photos. And there was that tempting balance of how many photos do you take because everyone's dressed nice and it was wonderful. We had some great photos we were able to take. But again, you can't be distracted that you miss that experience that you're in, whether it be with your family or at a wedding or meeting the Pope for the first time. And so I think part of my take on this is to work on being present in the moment, to be watchful with regard to what is and isn't your news to share publicly? And also having a generosity of spirit and being virtuous with regard to understanding other people's perspectives as well. Because I think we do live in a time where it's difficult to understand. Well, why can't I post a picture of my grandbaby online? Or why can't I picture post a picture of my child who just got married? It's kind of one of those difficult, uncharted territories that we've been in for a number of years now. And I think this whole strictness with photos and sharing photos is only going to get stronger. And I get why people want to be strict. I think it's important, especially with children's photos and the photos going up online and being sold. I get it. And I thought this was just an interesting, new, trendy thing that continues to happen and it's food for thought so if you have a thought on it give me a call 888-914-9149 or write me online relevantradio.com forward slash trending my email is there where you can reach out i would love to hear from you i'll be right back here on trending and we're going to talk about a trend on tiktok it's a morbid trend but it's showing a real need it's almost like tiktok therapy for some people and that is many women countless women who are saying goodbye to their babies who they aborted. 
and in droves there are thousands of comments with other women saying I had an abortion too three months ago six months ago five years ago I want to share with you a little bit about those stories and share with you support for after having had an abortion to heal we're talking about what you're thinking about you're listening to trending with Timory on relevant radio and the relevant radio app I just want to share one more story on the whole topic of the trend of asking guests to take no photos. Apparently, it's called an unplugged wedding. I didn't know this. Thank you or unplugged ceremony. Uh, Patrick Alog let me know here, fact checking me, which is great. I didn't know that that's what it was called, an unplugged ceremony. So I think that's great. I'm all about being unplugged. You guys know I'm all about throwing the phone in the bushes, leaving it at home. I think that's great. I think we need to do it more. But Again, that whole question of asking your guests to not take photos at a wedding, it was an interesting one that hit close to home this weekend, so I thought I'd share it. But there was a neat story that my producer, Jim Shaper, had to share. He was saying that he, back in 2000, was there during the Jubilee year and a canonization, and the Pope Mobile was going by, and he chose not to snap the photo, but instead... He wanted to make eye contact with the Pope, and he made eye contact with Pope St. John Paul II. How incredible is that? Now, if he had focused on getting the perfect photo, he would not have had that opportunity, which I think is pretty neat. He said he has a photo of Pope St. John Paul II's side, but not that front-on great image, but he made eye contact with Pope St. John Paul II. I think that's a pretty incredible story. So food for thought on finding the balance between being present and your thoughts on the trend of asking your guests to not take photos at your wedding. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. I want to talk about what's happening on TikTok. I heard that there are women who are sharing their, not just their abortion stories, but that they're mourning their abortions on TikTok. And I started looking at videos on TikTok of this. I don't have a TikTok account, but I'll go on occasion when something like this is posted. There are comments in the thousands. So a video goes something like this. Someone usually posts an image of their pregnancy test, maybe an image of their arm when they have an IV in it while they're in while they're in the the abortion business so to have the abortion. And they'll often post some sort of photo of themselves within the whole story narrating it. And the narration is a little baby voice saying, for example, one says, goodbye isn't forever. I love you. Uh, And one after another, mom, I still love you or I'll see you again. But here's what's interesting. The verbal text, the written text that is typed out on the video, as you hear this little baby voice narrating it says, "I ha- for example, I had an abortion. Goodbye isn't forever. I would still choose an abortion again. I mourn my baby every day. It's been six months, but I would still do it again. I'm glad I made my choice, but I miss my baby. These stories are heartbreaking. One after another, I started reading the comments. One woman said, I did it three months ago. I did it six months ago. I did it three years ago. One woman said, I think about my baby every day. I would still do it again. Another woman said, I felt isolated and had no support. Another person said, your angel will come back to you in another soul when you're ready. 
Another person said, I had a medical abortion. Most traumatic experience. I still have nightmares. In other words, she had a chemical RU486 abortion, the one that's being talked about being taken off the market. By the way, one woman after another would say she had a medical abortion. That's a chemical abortion, not surgical. That's where you take it home and do it yourself. And they all say it was the worst experience. One woman said, I fell in love with someone I've never met. I will forever think about the guilt and shame. All I can think about is my baby. Another woman shared her experience where she said she had the abortion and then the next day her milk supply came in. She said my milk supply came in for a baby who wasn't there. Another woman said the guilt is real. No one understands. One after another, a woman said I had no support. I wish I could go back in time. Many women talk about how physically painful it was in addition to how emotionally painful it was. Many so-called doctors, people who provide abortions, who, who kill babies, say that it won't hurt, yet woman after woman said how much it hurt physically. One woman said, a year and three months, and I still feel, and it still feels like yesterday. A lot of women made comments such as, I still can't talk about it. Many of such something along the lines of, here's one of them. She says, five years, I'm still not comfortable talking about it. They can't even call it an abortion. They can't even say what happened. My heart was breaking hearing these stories one after another. In three, five, ten words, sharing and expressing their pain from their abortion. If you or someone you know had an abortion, just like the thousands of women sharing their stories on TikTok, with strangers, I hope you will write down this resource. You'll share it with a friend who's been through an abortion at an opportune time. Perhaps pray for an opportune time because healing is necessary after abortion. Supportafterabortion.com, that's supportafterabortion.com, is a resource for you to go to. And did you know that most people don't know where to go for healing after an abortion? This is a great tool for people to find a way to put the pieces of their life back together, to stop suppressing the memory that will and does come up. That's support after abortion. One woman after another shared about how physically painful it was, how she has nightmares time and time again. Women deserve better than abortion. Why is it that we have a TikTok social media trend for people to anonymously or not even necessarily anonymously, with their own aliases. And they are. They have their aliases there. One after another, share their abortion, many of whom say they would do it again. Some of whom said they would never. There's a great pro-life warrior here, clearly, who shares about Rachel's Vineyard, Rachel's Hope and Healing. Those are retreats for people who have experienced, who have been through having had an abortion. What I know right now is happening is that after the overturning of Roe versus Wade in 2022, each state is battling over whether or not they will be a pro-life, more pro-life, or more pro-abortion state. But the casualties along the way are women. Women rushing to get an abortion because they're scared their state will ban it. Women choosing abortion because that's what they would always choose. Women having an abortion because they think that was their only choice. It leaves a mom with a dead baby and a baby who has been murdered. And that's the bottom line. And that's why woman after woman shares, I think about my baby every 
single day. No woman deserves that. Yet we allow in our culture in the 21st century for legalized abortion because it happens within the four walls of a so-called medical facility with maybe a medical license. That's not even required today, especially in my home state, such as California and others. You don't even have to actually have a physical doctor there to perform the abortion. It's outrageous what women are going through. The physical pain, the emotional fallout, the nightmare, the desire to replace a child, the desire to avoid children. We should be telling women a different story, and that is that you don't have to kill your children to be happy in life. You don't have to kill your children to think that that's the only way to be a good mom. And that's what's scary, is that a lot of these women who are mourning their children are people who think that they couldn't be a good mom if they were to parent whether it was because they're no longer with the person who they conceive the baby with, that is the father, whether because of life circumstances. This is what I love about our crisis pregnancy centers, that they are waiting with their doors open to welcome women with mentorship, financial support, diapers, wipes, baby clothes, and in droves. But the challenge today is this great chasm between the woman who is considering an abortion or in need of help, and our abortion, our pro-life crisis pregnancy centers, resource centers, is that we're having a hard time getting women in those doors because women are so quickly choosing to have an abortion. Because Planned Parenthood is so loud in their advertising and marketing that they're getting to women first. So we need to be relevant to people of childbearing years and talk about the fact that there are countless resources from mentorship, from from housing, from resources, if you're interested in an open adoption, whatever it is, there are unlimited resources at the fingertips of crisis pregnancy centers and churches. I remember some years ago when I was working in the crisis pregnancy centers because I worked in them for over five years, and there was a young woman who she had been on drugs, she was pregnant, she was caring for her father who had some handicap. She was caring for a brother who was also dealing with drug and alcohol issues. And she needed a home. She needed an asylum. She needed somewhere to go to be mentored, to be loved, to embrace, to be taught how to be a mom. Within minutes after the crisis pregnancy director asked for, is there anyone who's willing to take this young mom into their home to mentor her and love her? Immediately, she had a home, a mentor, someone to help teach her how to be a mother, a safe haven. Someone who would act and love her child just as a good grandparent would. She was given resources to help finish college to support herself and her child. She was given services to help in finding healthy boundaries in terms of how to deal with the relationships with her father and her brother in the midst of now being a mom and needing to put her child first. Women think they have no choice but abortion. But there are crisis pregnancy centers, resource centers across the nation, churches with countless resources. If only we could help bridge the gap between the women who are considering and choosing to have an abortion and the resources available. But for any of you who have maybe been through the traumatic experience of having had an abortion, please know this resource, supportafterabortion.com. That's supportafterabortion.com. 
This is Timray from Trending with Timray. Tuesday, I'll talk about infertility questions. Everything from intrauterine insemination, what's known as GIFT, and IVF. I'll also talk about Pornhub fleeing states. This is good news. And what you need to know about five myths of children's exposure to pornography. Join me Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.